Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a celebration of books. I'm Nico Callaghan. In today's episode, a session of the Readings Australian Red Cross Book Club on the laws and impact of war. In this session, we are joined by former Australian Foreign Minister Gareth Evans, ACQC, to discuss his latest book, Good International Citizenship, The Case for Decency. The book poses the question, why should Australia, or any other country, care about poverty, human rights atrocities, health epidemics, environmental catastrophes, weapons proliferation, and other seemingly faraway problems, regardless of any direct impact on our own safety and prosperity? Evans's answer is that to be, and to be seen to be, a good international citizen, a state that cares about other people's suffering, and does everything reasonable possible to alleviate it, is not only a moral imperative, but a matter of national interest. The Laws and Impact of War Book Club is a partnership between Readings and the Victorian International Human Law Advisory Committee of the Australian Red Cross. Here's the host of the discussion, Rebecca Barber. It is my immense pleasure to introduce Gareth Evans. Gareth was a Cabinet Minister in the Australian Labor government, as I'm sure you all know, including as a foreign minister from 1988 to 1996. Since leaving politics, he has served as the president of the International Crisis Group and the chancellor of the Australian National University. He has co-chaired two major international commissions, one on intervention and state sovereignty, which developed the principle of the responsibility to protect, and the other on nuclear non-proliferation and disarmament. He has received a number of national and international awards for his work on mass atrocity crimes and arms control and disarmament. And in his spare time, he has written and edited 13 books. So thank you so much, Gareth, for joining us tonight. So we're here to talk about Gareth's book, Good International Citizenship, So, Gareth, if I may, I'd like to ask you, bearing in mind that there may be some people who are joining us because they're interested in the discussion but possibly may not have read the book, if you could just start by telling us what you mean by this idea of good international citizenship and perhaps also how, during your time in government, you came to be so focused on this. Well, thanks very much, Rebecca, for the pleasure of talking to you. Thanks, Christine, and to Readings and to everybody for setting up this uh, this wonderful exchange. Concept of good international citizenship, being and being seen to be a good international citizen, is essentially to be the kind of country which is a decent country, which other countries warm to seek to emulate trust, the kind of country that is not seen to be totally inward-looking, totally obsessed with its own self-interest, but recognises the reality of the human distress that is so often evident in other parts of the world and is willing to contribute usefully to helping resolve it. We can come to the particular benchmarks that I identify for good international citizenship later on, but they include things like how generous an aid donor you are, how enthusiastic a supporter and promoter of universal human rights you are, how well you in fact contribute to the best of your capacity to improving peace and security and to dealing with the terrible human consequences of war and atrocity crimes. Everybody gets it that the core business of foreign policy is protecting and advancing the country's national security interests, country's national economic interests. 
there's less of a willingness to accept that there's a whole third category of things that governments do or should do that don't easily fit into those traditional duo of national interests. And my argument is, and always has been, way back to the dark ages when I was foreign minister, that this this is a potentially neglected area of foreign policy, which is nonetheless extremely important. And it should, in fact, be seen as a third category of national interest, not just a moral imperative to do the right thing in these various decency issues that I described, but actually there are good, hard-headed uh, realist returns uh, for the cynics and skeptics among us in engaging in this kind of activity. So that's the, that's the basic core message. This argument that it actually is, even for, as you say, the hard-headed, narrow-minded among us, that it actually is in the national interest to be a good international citizen. So can you elaborate a bit on that as to how, how that is in the national interest? two big drivers of the concept. One is unquestionably the moral imperative, just doing this stuff because it is the right thing to do. However you get there in terms of your moral reasoning, whichever cultural or philosophical mountain you want to climb in identifying what the source of that moral imperative is, it's there. And I think we all recognise it and it's based essentially in our common humanity. But putting that to one side, there is also what I describe as a national interest imperative. And I think that's got three components, three quite hard-headed components. The first of them is reputational. Countries that do behave in the way that I've described as decent countries against all these various benchmarks are countries that have the kind of reputation that lead other people of other countries to want to visit us, to trade with us, to invest in us, to study here, uh, to travel here as tourists, to engage with us, to trust us in international negotiations, to support us for key policymaking international positions. Reputational advantage is something that's really, really pretty tangible. It's often been called in recent years soft power, you know, the, the, the power that flows from, the attractiveness that flows from being seen to be the kind of country that, as I've said, others trust and want to emulate. The clearest example, I suppose, of crude as it might be, of a sort of a hard-headed advantage that flows from a country's reputation. Um, I always love the example of Sweden, which is a super squeaky clean, good international citizen on, against almost any benchmark you might care to think of. But Sweden also happens to be um, one of the world's biggest suppliers of conventional arms. Cockham's, Bofors, um, these sorts of companies are huge suppliers for the reason that other countries policymakers in other countries are all completely comfortable in dealing with Sweden. It doesn't raise any kind of moral discomfort at all in dealing with them. An ironical example, but I do want to make the point because too many people think being a good international citizen is just a matter of Boy Scout good deeds, which doesn't bear any tangible fruit against those traditional national interest benchmarks. The second hard-headed return is reciprocity. We all understand this in our personal lives, that when we do something for others, they're that much more inclined to do something for us. And when we do it in a way that's utterly unself-interested, responding to someone else's natural disaster or pandemic issue in West Africa or whatever, then they'll be that much more inclined to help us when we seek their support on an issue to do with human trafficking or international crime or piracy or terrorism or refugee outflows or whatever. It's just a, a natural instinct, often hard to sort of pin it down, often works quite subtly. But nonetheless, I don't think there's anyone who's been in the international relations business would fail to understand the force of that. If you're the kind of country that helps others, they'll be that much more inclined to help you. The third hard-headed return 
really goes to the way in which we deal with those global public goods issues, pandemics, climate, and the trying to redress, deal with the horror, potential horror of nuclear war, which might not seem to be immediate national security returns or immediate economic returns. I mean, in the case of climate, for example, there's, there's disbenefits for a country like Australia because of our fossil fuel dependence in our exports. But nonetheless, everybody acknowledges that like other collective action goods, as we call them, even though it's not in everybody's immediate interest to support these things, it's in everybody's interest ultimately if you get them right. And being a good international citizen, being the kind of country that has a reputation and a willingness to be cooperative, to be collaborative, to engage in collective problem solving of these intractable problems, is the kind of country that does help the decision-making process and helps to get things things done. When I had all my bean counters, the Peter Walshers, the finance ministers, and all the rest of us making life miserable for me when I was trying as foreign minister to increase our aid budget, I, I used to often respond by saying, well, these are the sort of benefits, the hard-headed benefits that flow from being prepared to spend our resources on these things. They're not just Boy Scout good deeds. They're not just optional extras. They're the hard-headed, they should be, part of the core business of foreign policy. You talk about how it became quite a central platform in Australia's foreign policy and how sometimes interventions, and I think you're talking here about negotiation and persuasion, can be, as you say, manifestly unproductive, but that it's worth engaging in them anyway. So I'm just wondering if you can elaborate a little bit on what you mean by that and perhaps if you have any examples. Can be quite tricky to, to navigate a lot of these things. Not only do you get uh, sometimes quite complex issues of trade-offs arising, the classic one between being being between peace and justice, when um, sometimes to go soft on an obvious perpetrator of crimes against humanity, war crimes, breaches of the laws of war or other human rights, to do so may nonetheless be an important way of being able to craft a, a peace policy which will save many other lives and much other misery. And I don't think we can avoid uh, the reality of those trade-offs by simply asserting, as some people in the human rights business do perfectly understandably, uh, that there can be no trade-offs at all, that you cannot, you cannot compromise at all on the subject of impunity when it comes to people who've, um, who've breached these laws. It's a bit more complex than that. Similarly, it's a bit more complex, um, the business of knowing when to, when to campaign actively and openly and noisily against obvious breaches of human rights, international humanitarian law, and when to uh, behave more quietly, more privately. Of course, too often in the past, the virtues of quiet diplomacy have been paraded by those who don't really engage in any such diplomacy at all and simply don't want to raise embarrassing or difficult or problematic issues with their interlocutors. We all know about that. But it is also the case that, in, particularly in some cultures, not least in our own region, uh, issues of face and avoidance of humiliation and so on are such and so so salient that they can be absolutely critical in terms of the way in which you handle these issues if you want to actually get results and not just make yourself feel better. So my golden rule, which I actually spell out in this little essay, and I certainly adopted it when I was a foreign minister, when it comes to making human rights representations, is it's got three elements. One, of course, you do that which is productive, which is going to be helpful in getting the result that you want. Secondly, you don't hesitate to do that which is unproductive, even though it may just 
be frustrating, even though it might irritate your diplomats like crazy to have them going in to make representations about imminent executions or human rights violations when they know that nobody's going to take any notice of them. But nonetheless, it is important for these messages to get across drip by drip that the rest of the world is taking notice of these violations. And um, we certainly did a lot of that kind of stuff, knowing perfectly well that it wasn't going to bear immediate fruit. The real thing you have to be very careful about, the third leg of my, my stool, is avoiding that which is counterproductive. And it simply is the case that sometimes it is counterproductive to be very noisy in your campaigning and the way in which you approach these issues, and much more can be done quietly and privately. The best example I, I have from my own experience and that I, again, talk about in this little book is the East Timor issue, which... It's going to haunt me for the rest of my life, I suppose. It was like the hardest single policy issue I always had to deal with, in which I had been making some really, really serious progress in private talks with um, my counterpart, Ali Alitas, in which he, who very committed as he was to uh, getting the pebble out of the shoe in Indonesian international relationships, was very, very willing to push hard for autonomy for the East Timor region, not independence, this, this predated the, the possibility of independence, but genuine autonomy in which the military was out, uh, major um, economic support was in, cultural respect was there, and just generally the East Timorese could assume a life of some normality and dignity. He was all in favour, and he was right on the verge, he told me, of getting Suharto Indonesian president to acknowledge that there needed to be a change of course and they needed to go down this particular path. When, in the lead up just a day or two before a big APEC meeting in Indonesia, US President Bill Clinton, the best will in the world, said very, very publicly, what has to happen in East Timor is recognition by the Indonesian government of genuine autonomy and respect for the dignity and so on of these people. Utterly unproblematic in what he was saying. But, of course, the immediate reaction of Zahato was, I'm not going to visibly succumb to that kind of pressure. And this is completely off the agenda as a result. And variations on that theme, including a lot of individual cases that one, one reads about, you know, do have to be taken seriously. It can be quite counterproductive sometimes. That's no excuse whatsoever for, for pretending to be active and not being active at all. But it is sometimes a very good reason for not being as visible as people might want us to be. I want to move on a bit and move on to, to the issue of nuclear weapons. You say that this is one of our greatest existential challenges and one about which policymakers and publics appear to be the most complacent. And your book provides a very alarming account of the current threat level and how rather than moving towards disarmament, the risk is in fact greater than it's ever been. And you say that we can't expect our life. To continue, this has obviously become all the more pertinent since you wrote your book, something that you, I understand, continue to be very involved in. Could you tell us a bit about the Commission on Non-Proliferation and Disarmament that you co-chaired in 2017 and the path that was mapped out by that commission and perhaps reflect on where we're at now in relation to what you were advocating for at the time? Well, the starting point for that commission, and indeed for anyone who takes this seriously, is that nuclear weapons are the most indiscriminately inhumane class of weapon ever invented, and they really do have to be eliminated from the face of the earth. But saying that's a lot easier than delivering it, and 
we all know that despite some of the advances that have been made in recent times, including the agreement of 120 or so countries to uh, accept and endorse the text of a, of a nuclear ban treaty, we know that um, the goal of elimination is probably as far away as it's ever been, with the nuclear arms states, nine of them, completely now dug in. And the umbrella states, those who like to believe they're sheltering under the protection of the US nuclear umbrella in particular, uh, being utterly unwilling themselves to, to join the treaty or even, for the most part, contribute constructively to trying to improve it. Under those circumstances and in an environment where the risk of nuclear catastrophe is very real, I don't think it's that huge in terms of deliberate use of nuclear weapons. I think the the understanding by any sane policymaker of the, the real world utility of these weapons um, and the kind of military benefits they can achieve, the geopolitical benefits they can achieve as compared with the costs involved, I, I think that will militate against, although the situation is very, very fragile and obviously uh, Ukraine, Russia at the moment, and will be in many more situations in the future. So long as these 13,000 weapons exist with the destructive capability of more than 100,000 uh, Hiroshima-sized bombs, so long as that exists, uh, there's a huge possibility that these things will be used by miscalculation, by misadventure. You quoted me, I mean, sheer dumb luck that's kept us out of that territory uh, for all those years since the Second World War. It's not a result of the statesmanship or the inherent stability or coherence of the of the weapon systems or the political systems themselves. It's really, we're, we're on a knife edge on this. Under those circumstances, what do you do? Do you continue to just put all your eggs in the the elimination basket and say that anything less than that is a complete cop-out, too much of a compromise and not something we can seriously advocate? Or do you go down the path of saying, let's at least try to get some step-by-step -step process in place. Let's at least, if we can't get the elimination agenda outright and up there, let's at least get a minimization agenda in place. Let's focus on nuclear risk reduction. And that's what we did in that um, Australia-Japan uh, report. I think we, we did a pretty good job in spelling out um, the kind of steps that could usefully be taken. They can be summarized. The main ones of nuclear risk reduction, I think, can be summarized um, as the four Ds, which is, uh, first of all, doctrine, accepting no first use. Uh, secondly, de-alerting, taking these 2,000 or more weapons that are on hair trigger alert status off that status to minimize the risk of accidental or stupid use. Uh, thirdly, um, reducing deployments, uh, the several thousand, many more thousand weapons that are actually physically deployed and out there and armed and ready to go. If we can reduce those numbers quite dramatically, we, we do a lot for nuclear risk reduction. And of course, if we can reduce the numbers themselves down from 13,000 or so at the, hour at the moment down to perhaps a maximum of 2,000, still nothing like the Nirvana, still nothing like the ideal that we want to get to but a hell of a lot safer and, um, than where we are at the moment. My shtick on, on this, and it's sometimes a controversial one um, with people who are as passionate as I am about nuclear elimination, is that sometimes you can, in fact, make the best the enemy of the good, the merely good. And uh, if you make elimination is certainly the best, but getting to a doctrine of no first use and serious steps physically, which would make that credible, that doctrinal shift, 
um, is certainly pretty good and would take us a hell of a lot further away from the possibility of imminent catastrophe than we are at the moment. So that's the kind of message I, I have on that particular existential risk, but it's a, it's a big one and how Australia and other countries exercise their responsibility in responding to that is, is as good a benchmark as any of what I call good international citizenship. There's an unequivocal obligation under Article 6 of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty for the nuclear arms states to take, as you say, serious steps towards disarmament, not to achieve it tomorrow, not even, but to move down that particular path. And that's a responsibility that's been completely and cynically and crudely abdicated by the nuclear weapon states who are party to the treaty uh, from day one. And it's one of the reasons why every five years as we're coming up again to a nuclear non-proliferation treaty uh, review conference, everybody's on the edge of their seats. Will there be any kind of consensus outcomes, any willingness to strengthen the non-proliferation regime, or will everybody be so cheesed off at the continuing absence of any kind of visible commitment by the nuclear armed states to go down this particular path that they will jack up and we'll, we'll end the conference in the kind of non-consensual chaos that has been the norm now for the last uh, quite a few years. So that's that's the issue. And I mean, to, the nuclear armed states, the nuclear weapon states have just got to get serious about disarmament. Nobody expects them to do it tomorrow. There are real issues under the nuclear ban treaty about verification and enforcement in particular, which are not yet resolved. And the nuclear armed states are not entirely to be uh, you know, condemned when they say that if we were to unilaterally disarm by signing up to the treaty when others haven't, or even if we all do and some rogue rogue state um, remembers how to do this stuff and builds weapons all over again, what is our recourse? What's the enforcement mechanism? What's the verification mechanism to know that people have actually disarmed? And those questions haven't really been answered uh, by the, the ban treaty uh, supporters. The ban treaty is a hugely important normative step forward. It's a very important step in the necessary delegitimization of nuclear weapons, but it's aspirational rather than operational in character. And the the present Australian Labor government is, of course, wrestling now uh, with its policy commitment uh, to move down the path of um, signing and ratifying the treaty, but at the same time making that conditional on resolving some of these other issues that I mentioned. So all this stuff is very tricky, but let no one be in any doubt that the nuclear weapon states, nuclear arms states have just not met in any way remotely seriously their commitments, their obligations. A very, I mean, I, I put a lot of emphasis on the no first use doctrinal issue. Sometimes, again, that's seen as a bit of a cop-out by some people in the um, nuclear arms control, the anti-nuclear movement. What do you mean no first use? We stand for no use at all. But nonetheless, if we could get people signed up to that doctrinal commitment, and adding to it a reduction in alerting and deployments and so on to make the, the formal commitment that much more credible, we would be a hell of a lot further down the, the path of sanity than we are at the moment. And that's one of the things that um, successive Australian governments have refused to do to get, off the, to get off the pot on that one, to put any kind of pressure at all on the Americans. Obama wanted to go down a particular path, but was dissuaded by his umbrella state allies in Asia. Pacific and in Europe. Joe Biden wanted to go down that path, but has equally been dissuaded by the former Australian government, along with uh, many of the others. If we're serious about nuclear weapons elimination, we've got to get serious about some of these important steps along the way. How would you apply the theory of good international citizenship to the crisis created by Russia's aggression of Ukraine? What would a good international citizen do in response? 
Well, I think the, the very strong bipartisan response in Australia to that, even though we had no immediate security interests at stake and even though we had no economic interests at stake, while our farmers perhaps stood to benefit from higher food prices with the shortages, uh, clearly we were affected, like everybody else's is now obvious, uh, from the rising energy prices. But the reason why we took that stance, and I strongly support Australia taking that, that very strong stance and applying our own sanctions immediately and making our own contribution to uh, arms supplies for uh, Zelensky's government. That's classic good international citizenship. That's, that's because we're talking here about one of the most fundamental issues of the whole, not just the liberal international rules-based order, but any kind of rules-based order on which the uh, we all depend, uh, you know, the system that was embraced after the Second World War. And it's just been violated in the most obscene way uh, by the Russians with their, with their cross-border invasion without any... I mean, you can you can make the same sort of claim about the the obscenity of the American assault on um, Iraq in two thousand and three, and I do. But at least there was some kind of justification, believed justification, in terms of WMD weapons of mass destruction, possession, or human rights violations, or the threat of terrorism. Here, there is no shred of any credible justification at all. It's just a crude, old-fashioned, uh, you know, sort of imperialist aggression, and uh, it needs to be resisted. You know. Good international citizenship yells out at you to, uh, to to mount that resistance in every way that you can. It's it's very it's a bit depressing that the issue is still too often I think being cast in terms of democracy versus authoritarianism and so on. Whereas really the issue is about just some of the most fundamental norms of the of the whole international system of war and peace that uh, we all depend on observing. And I really do think um, it is important for us to continue to put gentle pressure on a lot of other countries in our own region, which have been less enthusiastic than we have been about good international citizenship in this context. An interesting discussion at the end of your book, when you say that politicians have misread the public in thinking that they need to focus on national interests. I think this is quite an interesting point for any NGOs engaged in advocacy towards governments. What do you think is, is the reason for this misreading on the part of politicians? And, and do you think that there's something that um, the Australian public or, or NGOs or advocacy organisations can do to better communicate the interests of the public in a lot of politicians and a lot of policymakers in the bureaucracy sort of share this view that the only real national interests are the security and the economic ones, that everything else is something that maybe it's nice to do and maybe if you've got ample resources to simultaneously address all the, the social ills that are so evident still in our own country and have something left over, yes, sure, or if there's some particular political pressure group that matters to you is pushing you hard, yes, sure, accommodate them. But it's very hard for them to get into their heads that the politics of decency are really not at all bad. On the contrary, the Australian public, and this is true of publics just about everywhere else from the opinion poll evidence I've seen elsewhere, are actually extraordinarily receptive to having their governments behave decently in a way that does credit to a country's reputation. And the evidence for this in an Australian context, um, and I describe it at some length, is in the Lowy uh, Institute polls that have been done for the last 15 years, another one's just come out in the last week or so, which not very systematically, but nonetheless quite substantively over that period, have asked questions 
On just about every one of the benchmark issues that I have identified, countries' feelings about how we should respond to atrocity crimes being committed in faraway places of which we know little, how we should react to natural disasters in similarly faraway places where there's no immediate return for us, how we should act when it comes to being generous aid donors. And on all these issues, the results are really very clear. People say, hey, that not quite so clear when it comes to aid. And we've had a lot of chat about this, and it's it's good to take this example because this is the one that looks at first sight as though it might be an outlier, but in fact it's not at all. When the Lowy Institute asked that question, giving the amount of money we were then spending in 2017 or 2018, I think it was, which was then around about $4 billion, they asked the question, is this too much? And people said, yes, it was too much. They were uncomfortable. Certainly, they didn't want it increased. That's been much quoted by Morrison government ministers ever since, saying that between 70 and 80% of the Australian population is opposed to further increases in aid or, in fact, significant expenditure on aid. And that justifies us reducing Australia's aid to the lowest it's been you know, for decades and made us you know, real outliers in the international system. So Lowy asked a different question the next year. They said, rather than putting a dollar figure, we'll ask people what they thought we were spending at the moment, question one, as a percentage of the national budget, not an abstract concept like gross national income or GDP, but the national budget. What do you think we're spending as a percentage of that? And what percentage should we be spending? And the answers are really incredibly illuminating. What people thought we were spending, 14%, $14 in every hundred of the national budget they thought was being spent on aid. They said, oh, that's, that's too much. We're a bit uncomfortable with that. How much should we be spending? Mm, $10. 10% of the national budget on aid. In fact, what we were then spending was 0.8%, 80 cents in every $100 of the national budget. So people were thought we were spending 17 and a half times as much as we actually were, but were prepared to spend 12 and a half times as much as we actually were. And that's consistent with what we know about the inherent generosity of Australians when it comes to donating to Aceh tsunamis and all the rest of the, the issues that, that press in upon people. Look, this is a very generous, this is a very decent community. And governments that ignore that inherent decency don't recognise it and pander to what they believe is an inherent selfishness, charity begins at home sort of view, are missing, missing the point. The politics of decency are, are pretty good. You know, it's hard to argue that being a good international citizen and being overtly so and promoting that actually wins you elections, although arguably our position on climate uh, was, a, was an election winner in this, uh, this last campaign. But I think it's very easy to argue that there's no evidence whatsoever that you lose elections by giving weight and prominence and preeminence, in fact, um, to these, these principles. How do we account for the seemingly popular rise of irresponsible governance, such as Trump, Marcos and others, and with that, the populist and worrying escalation of conspiracy theories and conservative rather than liberal thought promoted by a new technology and popular spokespersons? Well, this is the $64 question, isn't it? I and mean, then how we account for this extraordinary polarisation that's starting to be evident in so many democracies around the world? How do we explain the appeal of illiberal authoritarians in an environment where other opinion polling of the kind I've just described, quite current and quite overlapping with this rise in authoritarianism, nonetheless demonstrates that um, you know human decency is sort of somehow 
is alive and well, notwithstanding these these other forms that indecency is taking. There's there's a lot of intellectual political effort going into trying to address this conundrum at the moment. A hell of a lot of it depends on just the 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 luck of the drawer who who rises to leadership positions. And some it's the extraordinary erratic process in determining who gets to be the, the leaders of countries at times of crisis and difficulty. But um, the people whose instincts are decent and are willing to take risks are critical in high public places because they do set the tone for everything that follows. You know, as Keating used to say, you change the government, you change the country. If you change the leadership, you very often you know, change change the country as well. So it's just a matter of, I think, you know, hoping for the best. Obviously, the, the rise of social media and non-curated mainstream media has meant that people are are feeding their own prejudices and more baser instincts um, rather than, you know, being at all able to weigh and balance, but perhaps they never did. Perhaps we overstate the extent to which the business of political response, you know, was a matter of carefully thought through analysis rather than gut instinct. It's, it's, it's a really, really tough question. And I think the important thing is to get our rhetoric right, be respectful of those with different views, to get our analysis right, to make the arguments coherently and credibly and not be dissuaded by the superficiality of so much public discourse, take people seriously and respond to them seriously in the way in which you, you put these arguments, the way that I'm trying to do, for example, rather than just saying increase aid, da, 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 I'm trying to put in a larger context. But do also make the point, and this is you know, what I come back to the basic thesis of my little essay, um, you know, doing the right thing and, and producing decent you know, democratic outcomes and decent policy outcomes from good government process is not just a matter of um, you know, being a moral imperative, not just a matter of warming a glow. This is a matter of a profound national interest because countries that are seen to be decent, have decent leaderships, embracing decent positions, not the Orbans, not the Bolsonaros, not the Trumps, not the Johnsons, let's say. I mean, you know, the, these are countries that do win respect, do win credibility, and do do get returns over time from the international environment they're in. So maybe it, maybe it's seen by some people as a bit of a contradiction. You know, you're simply adopting the high-minded stuff, and at the same time taking the low ground of saying this is uh, this is vulgar, you know, national interest. But but really, a lot of, a lot of life is like that. And um, as I often quote, as I do again in this little little essay, the um, the Scottish Labour Party leader of the 1930s, Jimmy Maxton, when he when he famously said, um, "If you can't ride two bloody horses at once, you shouldn't be in the bloody circus." And I think um, having that ability to simultaneously touch the high ground, the low ground, the national interest versus just the, the values issues, uh, really is an important way of, of navigating this very difficult time in global history. So that I think actually is a little bit related to and something else I wanted to ask you, which is to come back. We, we've talked already a little bit about advocacy, but I wanted to come back to this idea of the best being the enemy of the good, which you talk a bit about. You say towards the end of the book, you have a section where you say the biggest risk for idealists is making the best the enemy of the good, insisting on an ideal but unachievable solution to a problem and in the process ending up with something worse. This is a challenge for human rights organisations and also organisations advocating for compliance with international humanitarian law because there's a need to find a balance between being pragmatic but also not wanting to compromise on principles. And I also wondered reading out if 
perhaps there is a role for advocates in advocating for the best in the hope that governments will at least do what is good. So I just wondered if you could perhaps explain what you mean by that and if what, what you think is the role for advocates who are advocating for compliance with international norms. Well, the risk of offending, again, no doubt legion of greens in this audience as there are in my own family i have to say that the two most obvious examples of the best being the enemy of the good in recent political memory in australia are the greens rejection of kevin rudd's cprs carbon pollution reduction scheme and the rejection of the malaysian solution on uh, on refugees both of which were imperfect solutions sure they weren't the best, but they were sure as hell better than what's followed subsequently with 10 years of uh, you know, policy drift or worse as a result of the inability to agree on just a, a halfway decent solution. And I think there is a message there for NGO advocates. I confronted this dilemma, and I touched on it earlier in this discussion, when I was hitting the International Crisis Group because... The issue of peace versus justice, and it, it does arise very clearly in an IHL uh, context when you're talking about war crimes being perpetrated or, or atrocities being perpetrated against civilians under the cover of conflict and so on. Situations constantly arise where you know the most terrible crimes are being committed and you do sometimes have the opportunity to, to grab the perpetrators and to... Um, to make an example of them and to make very clear your intolerance for impunity in any shape or form. But sometimes, just sometimes, not always, just sometimes, uh, to take that particular view uh, may be to completely undermine the possibility of a negotiated peace settlement or a stop to hostilities of a kind which will save a great many lives and a great deal of misery. The Charles Taylor case, which some people might remember, I was sort of rather involved in this when I was heading International Crisis Group, the Liberian president, absolute monster of a human being. The issue was, in short, whether giving him an amnesty or a retreat or a safe haven, uh, which another country was prepared to offer him, was a price worth paying for stopping a final onslaught on the city of Monrovia, I think it was, when there was anticipated that there would be thousands more deaths and casualties if the war was perpetrated as distinct from the ceasefire being agreed and the price of which was the, uh, was the, the amnesty. And that, that's just a classically difficult trade-off. And, you know, there's no, there's no sort of right answer to that because those of us who want to stop the, the violence and the carnage are obviously right from one point of view. Those of us who want to to, under no circumstances, not make an example of people who perpetrated horrible crimes. What's wrong about that? But sometimes it is just a matter of judgment. It is just a matter of utilitarian judgment, the greater good, the greater evil, and trying to navigate a course through. So I do constantly urge upon my NGO colleagues, as I did my ministerial colleagues and counterparts all those years ago and the international movement NGOs as well, you know, sometimes we just do have to be a little bit more pragmatic than ideally you know, we would want to be in order to achieve some larger good. And I've given, you know, two or three other examples in the context of no first use with nukes. You know, sometimes taking extreme positions is a way of being absolutely morally clear, making no compromises with your own moral positions. And that's very comforting, but it doesn't always help the people that you're trying to help most. And 
I think that's an issue you've just got to deal with case by case, never go case by case. We know the private sector is increasingly present in conflict zones and can contribute to and benefit from human rights abuses and violations of IHL, nuclear weapons producing companies and those that invest in them. What role could or should states play in monitoring and holding to account its corporate citizens abroad? <laughs> it's, a, it's a big question and a very real one because the influence that's wielded by so many of these big transnational corporations is, is unequivocally clear. One of the many issues in which I'm tangentially involved in at the moment is the move to establish an international anti-corruption court which would address the issue, which really is a very live one at the moment, of grand kleptocracy by national leaders and those working with them, and very often in consort, of course, with major commercial operators or would-be operators in their country who are less scrupulous than they should be about where their money is going. And at the moment, we rely wholly on national laws to address this. And some of the laws like those in the United States are very strong against those who offer bribes, but have absolutely nothing to say about those who, who take them. And um, I think, you know, the reality is that the corporate sector would benefit, and many people in that sector do acknowledge that, from a universal adherence to rules of decency, which they have some confidence will in fact be enforced. Thus the, thus the virtue of going down the path of trying to internationalize um, uh, the disciplines of anti-corruption in that context. Um, similar reasoning, of course, um, you know, applies to other kinds of um, violations of, of good behavior. And uh, a huge amount just depends on, on the corporates um, themselves. I mean, you can, you can try very hard to, to regulate their behaviour, but what's mattered most in terms of the corporates behaving themselves on environmental matters, for example, now, um, and a bunch of other issues, including um, sensitivity to Indigenous cultural concerns, conspicuously lacking in recent Australian history. What's, um, what's, what tends to, you know, to... To motivate them is not so much the fear of government regulation as the fear of, of uh, the community's based and shareholder reaction. And what's been really interesting, we can be pessimistic about all sorts of things that have gone on in the world and deterioration and standards and, and higher risks around the place. But there's, there's so many things have been working you know, for the better in recent years with the um, you know, response of the corporate sector to community sentiment, which is visibly changing on issues like climate and environmental sustainability and gender equality and gender respect and so on, and indigenous cultural respect. I mean, all these, all these issues, I mean, I've, I've been around for a few decades now, and it's really quite dramatic, the transformation in a lot of these um, you know, social attitudes, which have in turn fed back into the, into the corporates. So um, I think one, there, there's a role of course, for governments to be very tough about this stuff and to make very clear what the, what the rules are. But when you're operating in that global environment, um, it's very often more the case that the sort of self-discipline is going to be more effective than case by case country discipline. That doesn't mean you shouldn't try to apply the lot there's no doubt that you have put the arguments and the evidence for them that you are presenting now to political influences, and we have no doubt that there has been instances where that has proved very persuasive and achieved change in perspective. On occasions, 
that you have been successful in your arguments, what proved to be the game-changing bit of input? Was there a pattern to what proved to be most influential? Really, sort of all of the above. I mean, I think what matters, you've got to, you've got to touch a conscience nerve in your policy-making colleagues. You've got to make them sensitive to the reality that there's a right course of action, a wrong course of action, and uh, one might be more politically palatable than another, but there's the right thing to do. So you, you've got to touch that that, that moral chord, and um, you can sometimes find that tricky going with some of one's colleagues domestically and internationally, but you've got to do that. But that's a, that's a necessary condition, but it's not a sufficient condition. You've also got to touch that chord uh, very often that there's, there's something that is to be, in fact, gained in more hard-headed terms from uh, from the decent course of action that's being proposed. Um, you know, when I was arguing for an increase in the aid budget, um, you know, it, it used to appall me the extent to which I had to give the numbers about how much of our aid funds would, in fact, flow back to Australian contractors as distinct from, you know, end up wholly in the hands of people over there. I had to, you know, wince a bit when I talked about how important it was for, you know, to get the support of, of other governments for particular, um, you know, positions we wanted them to adopt in international policy-making forums or support we wanted for our candidacies, candidacies and so on. But I have to say that very often those were those were the clinching arguments, um, and um, you've just got to be prepared. Um, you know, politics is a cynical game. Governments, you know, we like to think of it as being more high-minded, and those of us who go into it for more high-minded reasons, you know, constantly strive to to have those principles apply on their own terms. But there's an awful lot of you know very crude, very basic national interest and self-interest calculations that go into it. And so what, you, what you've got to do is, is ride those two horses, ride those two horses simultaneously. And um, I've been most successful, I think, over the years in terms of particular things that I might have achieved in policy terms against basically cynical or resistant uh, you know, colleagues internationally as well as domestically. I think I've been most successful when I've been able to put it in terms of, you know, you will benefit um, you know, from this. And yeah, But one of the ways you, you, you do put the argument always, of course, is in terms of reputational benefit, in terms of soft power. And that's a, that's a very important point to be you know, telling the, the Chinese wolf warriors in recent years when they've been systematically destroying you know, what there was of Chinese soft power around the world and overreaction to various things. So, you know, you, you, you've got to play this game in a quite complex and, and sophisticated way. And um, I think, you know, the best NGOs are those that operate in this space and talk to governments in terms, and talk to policymakers in terms that they can understand and relate to. Don't just, don't just sort of preach at them, but try to empathise with the constraints that they feel, whether credible or attractive or not, and try and give them answers and arguments as to why it really, why it really matters. Um, you know, on IHL issues, for example, and it really does matter for our international credibility that we have our domestic house in order in these cases. I can't possibly comment on the cases that are now before the courts. But um, Australia's willingness to be seen to be taking seriously these allegations of terribly serious, you know, criminal misbehaviour and the conduct of, of hostilities, how we handle that domestically is absolutely critical to 
the way to the extent to which we will be listened to or even begin to be listened to internationally when we're wanting to make these points and strengthen these safeguards so you've just you've just got to it's a, it's a complex process but that's that's life i think that is an excellent note to finish on thank you so much gareth it has been such an absolute pleasure speaking to you and hearing your views. Thank you so much to all our audience. Thank you for um, the wonderful questions, for joining the discussion. And, um, hope you have enjoyed the discussion. And I hope that we get to see you at some of our um, book club events in the future. Thank you, Rebecca. You can stream previous episodes of the Readings Podcast at our website. We'll also find all kinds of other recommendations for great books, music, film, and TV. You can also sign up to e-news or to receive our free monthly newsletter, The Readings Monthly. The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Kelly. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. All episodes of this show are recorded and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and pay my earnest respects to elders past, present and emerging. Thank you for listening.